worship team. Let's open the word of God, please, to Luke 16. And we'll be looking at the passage that starts in verse 19 in a few minutes. But let's start here this morning. Very interesting. On Good Friday, according to Luke 23... Our Lord Jesus tells the terrorist on the cross, we'll explain that in a minute, today you will be with me in paradise. That's on Good Friday. Three days later, on the first Easter Sunday morning, recorded in John chapter 20, Jesus tells Mary Magdalene, I have not yet ascended to my Father who is in heaven. So where did the Lord's soul go <laughs> between Good Friday, when he told the terrorists next to him that expressed faith, you'll be with me in paradise, but then three days later, inclusive, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, he tells Mary he hasn't ascended to heaven yet. What's going on there? And uh, how do you line all that up? We're going to think about that issue and others this morning as we think about um, life after death, past, present, and future. You could also call this a Christian's orientation to life after death. In the old days, before Dustin was one of my students, or Angel was one of my students at Cameron University, we would have called this Death 101, but we don't do that anymore. At Cameron, it would be Death 1113. That's the freshman level course, is 1113. But we'll look at that, and I think uh, you might learn some stuff as we look at Life after that, past, present, and future. But first, as is our custom, as we pray that we'll be teachable to God's word. This will be about the text, not the teacher. Uh, that we also pray for those who protect and serve us. And as we think about our military and our peace officers and our firefighters, international, national, and local. Um, today, and for the next couple of days, uh, our good friend David Stribling is in Arizona. As you know, uh, he's the grandfather of a brand new baby boy, Caleb Joshua Stribling, who was born about a week and a half ago at one pound nine ounces. And he's almost two pounds now. Caleb is coming through like a champ. But, uh, you know, David Stribling, if you don't know him that well, he's quiet, he's quiet unless you spend the night with him on the Israel trip, right, Ron? And then he's like a magpie. But um, once you get him talking, he'll talk to you. But he's just a, a world-class engineer, a wonderful, faithful Christian guy. And, um, you know, he's he's really so excited. And uh, he, he talked about how cute that little baby is. Now, watch. I've got two sets of uh, twin grandchildren through Jonathan and Candace. And they were both born premature. And I can remember Jonathan that said the same thing. I mean, ours were quite a bit bigger than Caleb. I think uh, uh, the first set was 313 and 413, and I thought they were teeny. And then the two little girls, Eloise and Violet, were even smaller. But I remember being in the NICU, and Jonathan was looking at those little babies that were so premature, and it's a miracle they're even alive. And mine are doing great. But he said, they're so darn cute. And I thought, you know, I can think of a lot of things I would say about those little babies, but I don't see the cuteness there. But that is a father's love, or in this case, a grandfather's love. So let's 
I'm going to ask somebody to pray for our teachability and for our troops, peace officers and firefighters briefly. But also, let's, um, if you would, lead us in a prayer for, uh, for the new baby and for David as grandfather there ministering to uh, Allie and uh, Josh, who are the parents, okay? So let's see. I'm going to have to let an elder do this. I'm not sure I can trust. To warm up our capacity for abstract thought, I'm going to try one more time. These are uh, hopefully hilarious abstract thought warmer-uppers. Advanced math courses are always as easy as pi. P-I. Which actually goes on infinitely, but it's just a big number. What did the mama hamburger call her first baby? Patty. (laughs) And then finally, hold your applause, Ron Miller got fired from his first job at a calendar factory because he took a day off. And it was Pastor Appreciation Day. Okay, let's talk about Life After Death 101, past, present, and future. And let's start with Luke 16, 19 through 31. Uh, some commentators want this to be a parable. Uh, the Lord never uses a specific personal name in a parable. I think this is an actual event. But it's not the Lazarus we know from John 11. It's a different guy named Lazarus, okay? There was a rich man who would dress in purple. That was the color of royalty. It'd be like driving in a fancy Lexus chariot or something like that. It's just a kind of a status symbol. And fine linen, feasting lavishly every day in a subsistence culture. He'd be the only guy with a weight problem, probably. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate, just begging outside this guy's mansion, this rich guy's mansion. And he longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick Lazarus's sores. He's just in a bad, bad way. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's presence. Wherever Abraham, the Old Testament poster boy for salvation by faith, went when he died, that's where Lazarus went. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, and that word Hades is a transliteration of the Greek word Hades, which is the Greek New Testament form of the Hebrew word Sheol, which means the place of the dead. Being in torment in Hades, Sheol, the place of the dead, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off. They're both in the same place, but you can't get to the two different sections. Abraham and Lazarus are in one section. I'm going to say it's the upper section. The rich man, unbelievers, in the lower section. He looked and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. And the rich guy says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony. Verse 25, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here. I'd say because he believed in the promises of the Messiah while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm King James says a great gulf fixed is between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there where you are cross over to us. They're in the same place, but you can't get from one section to the other. Verse 27, Father, he said, then I beg you to send 
him, Lazarus, to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them that this is all real so they won't come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. We would call that the Old Testament. They've got the Old Testament. They should listen to them. And everybody in that culture went to synagogue every Saturday and they heard the Old Testament expounded systematically. So they had no excuse. No, Father Abraham, the rich guy said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they'll repent, then they'll change their mind. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets and the word, they're not going to be persuaded, even if someone rises from the dead, and certainly not everybody who heard about the resurrection believed. So we've got the rich man here, a non-believer, and Lazarus, a believer. They both die, they both go to the same place. They go to Hades, they go to Sheol. And in fact, when you look at the Old Testament and you read it closely, everybody who dies goes to Sheol. Good, bad, rich, poor, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, David, Solomon, Pharaoh, the Philistines, and the sons of Korah. They all die and go to Sheol. So how in the world are all the people going to the same place? Um, well, they are going to the same place, but not really exactly the same place. This is hard to... Uh, digest on a Sunday morning, but that is a schematic. That's not a, a photograph. It's a schematic of Sheol. In the Old Testament era, everybody dies and goes to Sheol, the Old Testament word. Hades, the New Testament word, means the place of the dead. And as far as humanity is concerned, there's an upper compartment where Abraham, Isaac, and J- Jacob were Old Testament believers in the promised Messiah. And unbelievers were in torment. So we got the rich man in torments. We've got Abraham and Lazarus in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise, we're going to see. And you've got a great gulf fixed. That's what's going on there. That's going to be important to know when we move to the next passage. But let me say a word about that first. This is a schematic, a schematic overview of the Bible. The Bible's a big book, but it only has two parts. First part of the Bible is called the Old Testament. It's the portion written before the first advent of the person the Bible is all about, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament emphasizes two things. Everybody sins, everybody dies, and yet God has promised a Savior, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Now realize, when you're reading Luke, is Luke in the Old Testament or the New Testament? It's in the New Testament. But are the events Jesus is talking about in Luke 16 happening before crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, or after? Yeah. The Gospels are New Testament books set in the Old Testament, the last days of the Old Testament era, and you've got to realize that. So we're talking about those kind of dynamics where everybody goes to Sheol, but Abraham's in the blessed portion and uh, the rich man's in the cursed portion. Everybody sins, everybody dies, but God's going to take care of the sin problem through the Messiah who will be like a lamb. The second part of the Bible, it's only two parts, called the New Testament. Joe Franks knows that. New Testament books are written by eyewitnesses of the resurrected Christ under inspiration. And the one major premise of the New Testament is what? Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified, risen Savior, is the one the Old Testament promised would take care of the sin problem and eventually rule the world And guess what? He's coming back to end history on God's terms, supernaturally, undeniably. 
So exactly how did Old Testament salvation work again, Pastor Brad? Well, it kind of works like this. Uh, they're saved by works obeying the law, right? By the works of the law, nobody can be justified, but through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law is not a ladder you use to climb to God. It's a mirror that shows you you're dirty and need a Savior. And realizing your guilt and your inability is what the Holy Spirit does before you believe and get saved. But in the Old Testament era, they've got very specific promises about a Savior, the Lamb, that's going to come. And in the Old Testament, people were saved just like we are, except the object of faith was less specific. We're saved by God's grace through faith in the Old Testament, faith toward the promised Savior. For you and I, it's faith directed back in history to the provided Savior. Okay? So... Yeah, do the rich man and Lazarus go to the same place? They go to the place of the dead. They go to Sheol. They go to Hades. But they're two separate compartments, and there's a great gulf fixed between them. Okay? Now, let's go to Luke 23 and deal with the issue I mentioned in the introduction. Look what happens here in Luke 23, 32 through 43. And after the uh, hearing before Pontius Pilate, we read this. This is on Good Friday. Two criminals. Notice that's the general term. The King James translates that thief. But the New Testament Greek text has a generic term for criminal. And what we do know from ancient history is the Romans only crucified rebels against their, their Roman occupation of the regions that they controlled. So these are people who are terrorists in the Roman mind, including our Lord Jesus. So but the Greek text just has the general term for criminals. The readers understood these were special category criminals that the Romans saw as a threat. Two criminals were also led, led away from Pontius Pilate's court to be executed with him, Jesus, when they arrived at the place called the Skull. Now, Golgotha, or Golgotha in English, is the Hebrew word for the place of the skull. So we could say Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died at Golgotha, Jesus died at the place of the, uh, or we could say Jesus died at Calvary. Where do you get Calvary? Calvary is a Latin word, and in 400, round number, A.D., the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, was translated into Latin. It's called the Vulgate, and when they got to Golgotha, or the place of the skull, the Latin word for skull is Calvario, and you anglicize that and you get Calvary. So that's where you get those terms, Golgotha, Calvary, place of the skull, they're all the same thing. And we've, we've been there, back, 46 of us back in May were there. Uh, so they took, took him to the place called the skull, they crucified Christ there along with the two criminals, the two terrorists, one on the right, one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do, do not know what they're doing. And they divided his clothes and cast lots for them. Lots for them. They're gambling for his clothes. Psalm, uh, Psalm 22, 1000 BC predicted that would happen. The people stood watching and even the leaders, the Jewish religious leaders who are making sure that Romans kill him like they had set him up to be killed, scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself as this is God's Messiah, God's Christ, God's Lamb, God's promised one in the Old Testament. The soldiers also mocked him. They came offering him sour wine, and he said, and they said, 
if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then Luke says, by the way, there's an inscription above the cross that says, this is the king of the Jews. Okay, that's the passage we're looking at. Welcome to everybody's favorite Bible contradiction, okay? If you talk to people and try to warn you about the Bible's full of contradictions, if you ask them what their favorite one is, most of the time they don't have one, but they had a physics professor in college who told them that. Um, but here's everybody's favorite Bible contradiction. Let's unpack that. If you look at the Matthew account, we're told the inscription says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. If you read the Mark account, it says, the inscription said, the king of the Jews. We're in the Luke account, chapter 23. He says, the inscription says, this is the king of the Jews. And John, the gospel John says, the inscription says, Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. Those are four different inscriptions. They're, they're different, but they're not divergent. Okay? If any of them said something like, this is George from Greece, the prince of the Gentiles, we'd have a problem. Let's see if we can correlate these. Without any Greek or Hebrew required in a good translation. Matthew says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark says, the king of the Jews. Luke says, this is the king of the Jews. John reports, the inscription said, Jesus, the Nazarene, king of the Jews. Guess, that's, those are four partial accounts. Guess what the whole thing said? Not that hard. You have four witnesses to an accident, a car wreck, or a murder, or a crime, or something like that. You're not going to get, Ben, you're not going to get four verbatim accounts. You're going to get four partial accounts, and if they're reliable witnesses, Franny, you can easily harmonize them. You don't need Greek or Hebrew here. That's not the problem. So here's the principle. Partial accounts are different, but they're not necessarily divergent. And that would be a good example here. But anyway, you're seeing Luke's account there. Look at verse 39. We're still in Luke 23. Then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you the one the Old Testament promised? You're going to be the Lamb of God? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, his fellow, and said, Don't you even fear God? Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we're being punished justly. We really have broken all Ten Commandments and murdered some uh, Roman centuries or maybe some Jewish folks that uh, collected taxes for the Romans, something like that. Because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man's done nothing wrong. And then the terrorist on the cross says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now I want you to notice something. He didn't walk an aisle. He didn't raise his hand. He didn't fill out a card. <laughs> he didn't join anything. He didn't quit anything. He's got nothing. You know, To be saved, you need to realize you're a sinner and you can't fix it. Or you're not going to trust somebody else to save you for it. Okay? But to the one who does not work, but who believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned as righteousness. For by grace, you don't earn it, you don't deserve it. For by grace are you saved through faith in Jesus Christ, and not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, The culture thinks we're telling you that we're going to heaven because we're better than they are. We're more righteous, we obey the rules better. That's not what Christianity is about. Christianity says the ground around the cross is level. Nobody's so bad they can't have eternal life through faith in Christ. Nobody's so good they don't need it, right? So we've got, do you believe in deathbed conversions? Jesus does. I mean, for what, you know, 
Next verse, verse 43. Jesus, he didn't even say Lord Jesus. He just says Jesus, Yeshua, God's Savior. That's what the name means. God's Savior, save me. I'm a sinner. I deserve this. I deserve to go to the lower part compartment of Sheol. Uh, but I believe you can save me, and I want you to. I don't think this guy's a theologian. I don't think you have to be a theologian to be saved. A little child can trust Jesus, the provided Savior for us, the promised Savior for him. What does Jesus say immediately? Man, I wish he'd talked to me last, last week, because you need to go to the rabbi. You need to do penance. You need to join this, quit that, do the other. He doesn't say that, Tommy. It's, man, this, salvation had to be totally by grace, through faith alone, for this to work at all. Uh, Jesus says, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Then you know what paradise is? Paradise is the upper compartment of Sheol, okay? It's where uh, Lazarus and Abraham were back in Luke 16. They're still there in uh, Luke 23. (laughs) Now, let's look at the rub here. Go to John chapter 20. So that's Good Friday, and our Lord Jesus who is an extremely good source on things like this, says to the uh, thief on the cross who puts faith in Jesus as Savior, today you'll be with me in paradise. Just a few hours later, when they died physically, their souls left their body. Death in the Bible is not extinction of consciousness, it's separation of your consciousness from your body. To a place of blessing for believers, to a place of punishment for unbelievers. True then, true now, always been true. Now let's look at chapter uh, 20 of John, verse 11. And this, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. But Mary was standing outside the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus, and is still trying to figure out what's going on here. Uh, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been laying. and ain't there no more because his spirit has gone into his corpse which has been supernaturally transformed into a resurrection body, and he's about to appear, appear to her. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And cheer up. And she said to them, Because they've, they, Jackie Kennedy said, they've killed Jack. As they were driving to Parkland Hospital from Dealey Plaza. I've walked over the spot, place. When I worked at the law firm in Dallas, we were two blocks away from where President Kennedy was shot, and I'd have to go to Old Red, sometimes his old courthouse, and I had to walk, I, I walked across the street where President Kennedy was shot. It was really an amazing, eerie deal. But she said, they've killed Jack, which doesn't necessarily mean that Oswald didn't do it alone, but you, you, women tend to think everybody that uh, has been not nasty to their husband, or in this case, their savior, must be conspiring to do this thing. But uh, she says, they, they've taken away the my Lord. They've taken away the body. They're going to desecrate the, the body. And I don't know where they've laid him, meaning the dead corpse. That's what she's expecting. When she said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. And then John says, he's writing this, but she didn't know it was Jesus. She's seen the resurrected Jesus. He looks enough like himself. Once you start figuring out who it is, you, you can know who it is. But at first, she wasn't. she's crying. She's kind of in the fog of war here. She's expecting to find a corpse somewhere, and she's not expecting. In fact, she thinks she's the gardener. Now, by the way, John wrote his gospel in about 69 A.D. If you're trying to support the Christian movement and talking about the glorified risen Savior, you're probably not going to make up that the, the first witness was a female because under Roman jurisprudence, she doesn't have enough um, 
equity to even give testimony. So if you're going to make it up anyway, you're going to have male see it the first, at first. And number two, you're certainly not going to have her think the resurrected glorified Lord is a gardener, you know? So this has the ring of truth. This is what actually happened. So Jesus is there, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And he says, woman, why are you weeping? And supposing him to be the gardener, while he was cleaning up the garden area around the tomb, said, sir, if you've carried him away, if you've taken away the corpse, let me know where you laid him, because we want to give him a proper burial. And then Jesus kind of stops. I think there's a pause. And he says, Mary? Like, Mary, get with the program here. And I think he has a huge smile on his face when he's saying that. Would that have been amazing? She turned and said, Rabboni, which means teacher, it's you. We just saw you crucified three days ago. Jesus, and, and by the way, the King James says, Jesus said to her, touch me not. That's what the King James, now King James was translated in 1611. Has the English language changed much since 1611? Yeah. Uh, and that's not even a good translation because some people say, well, he had, his resurrection body was such, if you touch him, you get zapped. You'd get, you know, 5,000 volts or something. That's not a good translation. The Greek text there has the word for uh, holding on. And with the present active imperative and the negative may, it means stop doing something you're doing. It ought to be rendered, stop clutching to me. In fact, the New American Standard says, stop clinging to me. I think he let her grab him, just to make sure he's tangible, for a minute or two or three or four. And she probably starts giggling giddily. And he eventually says, hey, let me go. we got stuff to do. I've only got 40 days between now and the ascension. Now, Stop clinging to me, for I've not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brother and tell him that I'm about in 40 days to ascend back to heaven to my father. So how do you put this together? Oh, my goodness. You guys know, don't you? Because you got a diagram. Um, on the day of uh, the crucifixion, we're still in the Old Testament era, E-R-A. So when Jesus says today you'll be within paradise, he's not going back to where he came from initially or where he's going to go to at the ascension. Remember, we got the crucifixion three days later, what? Resurrection, 40 days after that, the ascension. He hasn't ascended yet. He will not ascend for 40 more days. But he and the repentant, regenerate thief went to paradise Jesus' spirit goes back into his body transformed, right? And that's what we're seeing on the resurrection day on Easter. And then 40 days later, we have the ascension. And then uh, according to a couple of veiled New Testament references, and I'm convinced uh, uh, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, after the atoning sacrifice is kind of the session of Christ is when he goes back having completed atonement and is recognized formally in heaven, after that point, everybody in Abraham's bosom was promoted. I'm convinced that compartment has been empty since right after the, the ascension of Christ. But that's still where all unbelievers are going to torments right now, waiting an event called the Great White Throne Judgment at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Okay? So we've seen salvation past, present, future. Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. And this is pretty good. And I think um, if you had a rough week or anticipating a rough week, I think if more Christians would read the end of the book and see how it turns out, you'd cheer up a lot more. 
Yeah, if you're really going through a rough patch, this is my prescription, Dr. Brad's prescription. Read Revelation 21 and 22, like every day for a week, and see if it doesn't lighten you up a little bit. I mean, we got so much to look forward to, so cheer up, because it's going to get a whole lot worse before it gets completely better, okay? <laughs> okay, let's talk about uh, Revelation 21 and 22, and I bring that up because sometimes I've even heard TBFers who should know better so, you know, we, Carolyn died a few days ago, or early last week, and then uh, we had her graveside on Friday. And uh, people will say, well, she's walking the streets of gold. Carolyn's walking those streets of gold. Pearly gates. You know what? There ain't no streets of gold, and there ain't no pearly gates in heaven now. But there will be in something called the new heaven and the new earth. Okay? And let's just look at that. In fact, go to Revelation 21, 21. I always like it when the numbers are the same. 21, 21. Easy to remember. Now, Angel could be at home studying. Angel has a battery of tests the next couple of weeks in her nursing program that would uh, kill your average medical doctor. But she's going to do really well. But uh, we need to pray for her as she finishes her semester. But look at Revelation 21, Verse 21, and I'm telling you, chapter 21, 22 talks about the eternal state. We'll say more about that in a moment, but let's look at Revelation 21, 21. And this is going to be after the second advent of Christ and after the kingdom and after a whole new universe is created, which we're not there yet, but it's coming. And we read, and there were, there's a wall around the city, the new Jerusalem, and it has 12 gates. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Those, that's the pearly gates. That's going to be in the future. Each one was a single pearl. That's a big, there's a word for that. The, the Greek word is ginormous. That's a ginormous pearl, right? And the streets of the city were pure gold, like transparent glass, 24 karat perfect gold. Not now, but in the new heaven, new earth, which is called that. Heaven one is paradise. Heaven two is the heaven from which Christ came, where God manifests his glory visibly. It's a real place, but it's a spiritual dynamic. And that's where Jesus ascends to. That's where believers now go at physical death. Heaven three is the new heaven, new earth. And that's where the pearly gates and the streets of gold are. And I saw no temple in the new heaven, new earth. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. We're going to be direct fellowship with the triune God with an emphasis here on the Father and the Son. In the city, the New Jerusalem has no need for sun. No more melanoma issues for those of us who have melanoma. Or for the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God illumines it, and its lamp is the Lamb, and the nations will be people of all colors, countries, and cultures. All those crazy... There's only one race. It's the human race. And if some of you don't start moving, you're going to finish in last place. Just say, oh, no, right? Uh, Whosoever will may come through faith in Christ. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth, there will be different levels of authority based on our production in the Christian life. We're not saved by grace, but we are going to be judged by the fruit of our Christian life for various levels of authority and reward in the future. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And that's the pearly gates we're talking about. And they will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination or lying will ever come into it. It's going to be us without a sin nature. And that will be the best of all possible worlds. We're not in the best of all possible worlds now. One less rape, one less murder, you got a better world. I think it's the best world achievable with real moral creatures. 
But it's the best, one of the best of all possible worlds. Because when we get to the new heaven and new earth, evil will have been permitted. Evil will have been defeated. People will chose fellowship with God or rejected it. And then we're going to have Kylene without a sin nature. Won't that be good? <laughs> That'll be so good, Kylene. You know, God doesn't do a sin nature ectomy on us when we trust Christ and get the gift of eternal life. We're able not to sin now, but we're also able to sin like that. So I wouldn't be saying that if I wasn't leaving in three weeks. I said, see, I'm, I'm, I'm freed up to tell you what I really think now, you know. So this could get really interesting in the next three weeks, right? Um, yeah, so we're looking at the new heaven and new earth. Now, let's go back to the first part of this. Go to chapter 21, verse 1. Orientation to the new heaven and new earth. Chapter 21, verse 1. I saw, John says, a new heaven and a new earth for the first universe. The universe we live in now. The heavens and the earth we know now. The first heaven and earth have passed away. And there's no longer any ocean. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, redeemed humanity. And he will live with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have all passed away. So, yeah, notice this part of the diagram. We've been looking at Sheol. Now we're coming out here to the new heaven, new earth. The eternal state is sometimes called that right there. Okay, here's our baseline book of Revelation diagram. We're talking about this right here. Um, yeah, God has his Old Testament people, his New Testament people, but to, together in the eternal state, we're all going to be one big happy family with no sin natures. Right now, if you want to get along with other Christians, you've got to hold your nose and lean way over backward. We call that the baptism technique. <laughs> and uh, But we won't even have to do that anymore in the future. We've got so much to look forward to. And, of course, this gets quoted a lot. Wipe away all the tears. Um, that's not the way it is now. I don't care how spiritual you are. If you get cut, you're going to bleed. And if you suffer loss, you're going to grieve. That's the human condition, right? And so we've been built for something much greater than this, even though there's a lot of beautiful things. Uh, people complain about the weather in Oklahoma. We also have incredibly beautiful days like this one. But don't get used to it, right? And everybody seems normal till you get to know them. I mean, you know, just realize that. Just the way it is, right? Now keep reading. Look at verse 5. And the one seated on the throne, that'd be God the Father, said, I am making everything new. This is what you all have been designed for, to enjoy forever. And he also said, write, John. This is almost too good to be true, but write it down. It's really going to happen. These things are faithful and true. And then he said to me, it is done. God's purposes for permitting all the nonsense and all the sin and all the degradation that we live in now and that a lot of us crank, that I crank out myself every day, will have been completed then. Now watch this. The strongest argument against Christianity in Western mind was uh, first articulated by David Hume in 1776. Something else happened that year too. I can't remember what it was. But he said, if God is all good, he'd want to defeat evil. If God was all powerful, he could defeat evil. But evil isn't defeated, so that proves there is either no all-good God or there's no all-powerful God. Maybe God is all-good, but just not powerful enough to defeat it. He's doing the best he can. Or maybe God is good. Uh, maybe God is all-powerful, but he's not good. He actually enjoys his suffering. Okay, 
And that sounds like a powerful argument. You hear that the first day in philosophy class in college, and you're going, well, I guess i got to put away my faith, because evil exists. There's a hidden premise in that deduction that makes it invalid, uh, a time limit. Okay, Is there any indication in sacred scripture God has something bigger and better and perfect when he's done with permitting people making real choices right now? Yeah, so the way you word that argument is, since God is all good, he wants to defeat evil, and so should Julie Demerson and Brad McCoy right now, right? Since God's all good, he wants to defeat evil. Since God is all powerful, he can defeat evil, but evil exists, so his purposes for permitting evil is status quo. Status quo is a Latin phrase that means the mess we're in. God's purpose, Carson, for permitting the world as it is, isn't finished yet. Is there any indication he's going to be finished with it and then we're going to get an all-perfect, no Kylie without a sin nature kind of universe? Yeah. It says so right there in Revelation 21.6. He says to me about the eternal state. We're not there yet. It is done. I am Alpha and the Omega, first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, beginning and the end. That's how you diffuse that. That's not that hard, is it? Verse 6 continues. I will give, as you're reading this before the initials, the eternal state kicks in, I will give the water of life as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. If you want it, you can have it. People on the cross had nothing to give, and even the most religious person in the world has nothing to give that God needs. God doesn't need Brad McCoy or Billy Graham or you. He wants you, but he doesn't need me or you. He's fine without us. But we read, the one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he'll be mine forever. You want to be in the new heaven, new earth. You're not going to be sitting on a cloud, being bored, watching angels fly all day long. You're going to be endlessly fascinating with all that's real about the perfect universe and the infinitely fascinating God. Now, what does this mean? The one who overcomes will inherit these things? Well, First John says... Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, who believes in Jesus as their Savior, is born of God. And he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world, because the world wants you to believe anything about Jesus except that he is the exclusive issue and the exclusive issue of eternal life. You don't have to believe he's a bad guy. Believe he's a wonderful community uh, organizer or well-intended religious sage. That Everybody's fine with that. But the world system doesn't want you to trust in him alone for eternal life. Refuses to believe that and sees that as very backward and kind of very uh, divisive to actually believe that. And yet that's what you're doing when you're trusting Jesus Christ for salvation. Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't fix it. Jesus died to pay for my sins and rose again from the dead. His body was room temperature for three days. And you can't reproduce this in a laboratory or a nursing school, but it really happened, and you're daring to trust him for everlasting life. But for the cowards, that is, those who don't overcome the world, who refuse to believe in Christ as the Savior, and then it lists some of their more unsavory characteristics, the vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Uh-oh. That's saying all liars go to the hot spot. All liars. All unforgiven liars. Did David lie? Did Moses lie? Did Abraham lie? Did Peter lie? I don't know him, blankety blank, is what he said the third time. Yeah. Have you lied? 
If you'll lie about that, you'll lie about other things too. But this, Joe, this says all liars go to hell. All unforgiven liars. We're talking about believers, the forgiven folks who've overcome the world and trusted Christ as Savior. They're in God's hand. They're gods. They're going to be citizens of the kingdom forever. But murderers, I haven't done that. Sexually immoral. I've only uh, enjoyed that with one person my whole life. Wow. Sorcerers. I don't do a lot of that anymore. Idolaters. Well, that little statue of Krishna I've got in my office, you know, but I don't... No, all liars. I've lied a time. It's been a long time. I can't really remember the last time I lied at all. But uh, actually, I think I probably can if I thought about it. I actually told my uh, speech, speech class by the end of the semester they'd actually enjoy giving speeches. That was a lie. I knew they wouldn't enjoy it. Um, yeah, that that's talking about all unforgiven liars. What does Psalm 103 say? As far as you're standing... From the moment of saving faith, as far as the east is from the west, how far is that? Infinity, yeah. That's how far it puts away your sin, when you trust the sin bearer. So let's summarize this way. Basically, this is a little bit sloppy, and a theologian wouldn't like this, but I think it's helpful to start with. Think When you think about heaven, think about three heavens. Heaven one is where Old Testament folks, like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon, uh, Lazarus, went, it's the upper compartment of Sheol, right? Heaven too is where believers since the ascension, after the ascension, go to. That'd be Peter, James, John, Pam, Homer, Ron, and Jean, and Kyleen <laughs> as a believer. And then heaven three is what? It's the eternal state. It's when God is done with his purpose of permitting uh, history as we've known it. Uh, and it's going to be the ideal the perfect universe, okay? It's what we're really designed for. So you might say, well, golly, that's a bunch of interesting theology, but it's not practical. Go to Colossians chapter 3, please. I, I think you, you hear the warning, you don't want to be so heavenly minded, you no know, earthly good. I've been a pastor for 37 years. I don't think I've ever met a Christian who's so heavenly minded, no earthly good. I'm not, I'm sure it's possible. I'm not saying it's impossible, Sydney. I just never have seen one yet, okay? Here's what Colossians 3 says. Therefore, since you have been raised up with Christ, okay, Franny, that's you, Jean, that's you, Debbie Corbin, that's you, keep thinking, keep seeking the things above, be motivated by what is in, in your future, where Christ is, he's in heaven too, right? It's where his visible manifest, manifests his, his uh, reality, seated at the right hand of God the Father. In other words, set your mind on things above, not just on the things in the world. For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. I think most of us, at least for me, uh, we need to be more heavenly minded so we can be more earthly good. I mean, Dustin works hard as a plumber, and here lately he's had some especially challenging, messy cleanup jobs to deal with, and he he doesn't really like to think about them, but if you force him, he'll tell you the stories, and they're very interesting. But uh, uh, you don't have to be uh, dealing with manure all day to have to deal with issues, but I think if we were more heavenly minded, we'd probably be a lot more, a lot more earthly good. Now, that's not to say... But the now is not important. For angel, nursing school is very important. 
Uh, for Joe tomorrow, whenever you go to work, it's going to be important to wake up and go to work. You know, uh, you could pray that a paycheck just magically appears in your uh, mailbox every month or something, but most of us have to work for a living. The now is real and it's really important, but it's not ultimate and it's only temporary. And I got one more passage and then we will close. I don't want to lie to you about closing and not doing it, you know, because all liars, you know. Second <laughs> Corinthians, all forgiven, all unforgiven lies. Go to Second Corinthians 4. I love this one. Second Corinthians 4. This is very practical. At least Paul seems to think you already know this kind of stuff, and that's one of the things that keeps you going in the Christian life. Second Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus, God the Father, will raise us also with Jesus, if you're a believer, and will be present with you in the interim until you actually go to heaven, rapture or physical death, whichever happens first. Verse 16, therefore we do not lose heart. We don't become so demoralized by all this bad stuff that happens to us and around us. I mean, the sleepers have had enough demoralizing things to hit them. I'm surprised you can crawl to church, much less like walk through the door. It's not easy. But though our outer man is decaying, you know, if you get, if you're lucky enough to live as long as I have, Dustin, you'll know how, how that feels. Our inner man is being renewed day by day because we've got an uplook that keeps us when the outlook isn't very happy. For momentary light affliction compared to eternity is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look, we focus on not just the now, but the not yet. Not just what we can see, but the unseen. Well, we look in our mind's eye, not at just the things that are seen, the visible things, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal. The now's real is important, Michelle, but it's not ultimate. It's only temporary. But the things which are not seen are eternal, right? Everything you can see can be gone in five seconds or less. I remember the morning of 9-11, watching those buildings come down, and I thought, nobody in their right mind thought those would not exist when they were going to work this morning and going to those buildings. But they're all gone. Anything you can see can be gone in five seconds or less. So I would say this. When the outlook is bleak in your world, the uplook is always beautiful. I mean, kind of factor in the big picture. Our eternal future is out of this world with our Lord Jesus Christ, and the world is not our home. We're just a passing through, Right? So that's kind of the mindset you need if you're going to play the game of life well as a believer, right? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your amazing grace, mercy, and goodness, and for the awesome future and destiny you have for every believer in this world, regardless of color, country, culture, uh, generation, denomination. I pray for anyone in this room by your grace who's who's... Uh, needing to receive Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Open their hearts to see they're not so good, they don't need this. They're not so bad, they can't have this. But because Jesus died for our sins, we do not have to die in our sins. What must I do to be saved? The apostle was asked. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Uh, for those of us who are believers, Father, help us to be more heavenly minded so we might be more earthly good. We pray that you'd be glorified in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.